Let us pray. Blessed Lord, you have caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning. Grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. So have you seen what the latest polls say? Oh, no, not those polls, not those polls. I think we're all getting a little tired of those polls, and we'll be grateful when November 9th arrives, the day after Election Day, so we can start thinking about the polls about the 2020 election. Or maybe not. No, I'm talking about a different poll. I'm talking about a, a recent survey done by the American Bible Society about what Americans think of the Bible. And there is good news and there is bad news. First of all, good news, more than half of Americans think that the Bible should really have more influence on our culture than it does. And more than 88% of Americans report that they own a Bible. The survey also asked how many Bibles people owned and I wonder, how would you have answered that question? If a pollster came to your door and said, how many Bibles do you have in your house? What would you say? Just take, take a guess. Six? Three? How many? Nine or ten? Two? You can count uh, electronic versions, too, if you've got it on Kindle. You know. Okay. Okay. Six just on that. Okay, you're going up there. Daryl, that's, that's great. Uh, you know, um, the survey showed that of all Americans, there was an average of 4.4 Bibles in every home. I'm curious about that point four, what parts they threw out. <laughs> I'm guessing maybe Leviticus and Revelation. <laughs> ah, that's it. There you go. I figure that the uh, that that average would be higher among us or among church people generally. Some years ago, I asked a, a, a class of junior high school confirmation students to go home and actually do a census and count how many Bibles they had, and it came out to be an average of about 10 in, in their households. And those, of course, were all good, you know, church-going families, but I don't think that's unusual. My guess is that our house, we'd be pushing 20 uh, and, and I think you probably have more than you think, too. I mean, think about the ones uh, in my house. I've, I've got my childhood Bible, you know, the one that they gave me in third grade Sunday school. I've got my mother's old Bible. I've got my father's old Bible. Got a couple of uh, study Bibles that I've used over the years. I've got some different translations that I've bought. I've, I've, I've got some old family heirloom Bibles in a couple of different languages. And, and uh, like you, I've got several on my iPad or on my computer. And, and that doesn't even count a, a similar collection of Bibles that belong uh, to my wife. Certainly no shortage of Bibles at our house and probably not as yours. And, and again, maybe my collection as a clergyman might be a little bigger than yours, but probably not that much bigger. 
fact, I'll, I'll challenge you this afternoon to go home and actually take a census, and I'll bet most of you will find at least eight or ten Bibles uh, somewhere in your house, but don't just look on the shelf, you know, look in the cedar chest and all those places where you, where you might have stashed things. Well, that's the good news. Then there's the bad news. Only about one in five Americans actually reads one of those Bibles on a regular basis. Now, 61% say they wish they read the Bible more often, but they don't. You know, my mother's uh, Bible was given to her by her mother. My grandma was a Swedish immigrant, and while she could read English pretty well, she wasn't that good at writing, and her scrawl was almost illegible. Getting a letter from her in the mail was sort of an exercise in cryptography often. But on the fly leaf of this Bible she gave to my mother, her daughter, the words are clear enough. Read your Bible as often as you can, mother. Thing is, I don't ever remember seeing my mother actually read that Bible. I do remember my grandma reading her Bible every day until her eyesight failed and then she would ask somebody else to read it to her. So what about you on this question? If the American Bible Society came knocking at your door to ask you about your Bible reading habits, what would you say? Do you read your Bible regularly? Before you answer too quickly, the Bible Society survey was a little more explicit than that. It said regularly means at least four times a week. So let's say every other day plus in church on Sunday. Is that you? Or would you be more in the camp of the 61% who wish they read the Bible more regularly? Well, I'm not trying to make you squirm. Well, maybe I am. But I think every so often, it's good for all of us to take stock of ourselves, of our life of faith, and see where we might make some improvements. And one way to test that is to ask ourselves how often and how faithfully we read the Bible. In today's epistle lesson, Paul writes to Timothy about how important reading the Bible is. His words are more eloquent than my grandmother's scrawl, but just as heartfelt, writing to this young man, his son in the gospel. Listen to his advice again. He writes this, But as for you, Timothy, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it, and how from childhood you have known the sacred writings that are able to instruct you for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture, he says, is inspired by God, and it's useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient and equipped for every good work. So here we find a series of statements that outline why reading the Bible is so important for Christians. So I want to walk through those one at a time and see what they might have to say to us. First of all, he says, Scripture is inspired by God. Well, that's what I call church talk, you know. So what does that mean, inspired by God? It's God's thoughts put in words. Okay, that's not bad. What else? Okay. Okay. Anything else? True and correct. Okay. That's a good Lutheran answer, Bob. 
Yeah, actually the word in Greek, inspired, means literally that the scriptures are breathed by God. That's what the word means, breathed by God. The scriptures are the very breath of God, the force that gives us life. And if we don't live so closely with the scriptures that they become our breath as well, then our lives of faith are dead. I think a lot of times we uh, think of the Bible as sort of a reference book, you know, like an encyclopedia or a dictionary up on the shelf that you only take down when you need to look something up. That's not what it is. It is rather the very breath of the life of faith, the very breath of God breathing through us. And then Paul says that the scripture is useful to teach us. So what does it teach us? What we're supposed to do, okay. What's that? How to live, okay. Who does it teach us about? Jesus, Christ, God. Yeah, all that's right. But something else, it teaches us about us. It teaches us about ourselves. The New Testament book of James says that the Bible is like a mirror. Now, whether or not you have a Bible in your house, I'm sure you have a mirror, and I'm pretty sure you looked in it before you came out this morning. Why did you do that? To check your appearance, okay, yeah. You wanted to uh, make sure that uh, you didn't have any hair out of place, and you didn't have any toothpaste on your chin, you didn't have any smudged lipstick, you didn't have any scrambled eggs in your mustache. And the, the mirror of the Bible gives us an honest appraisal of how things are with us. So it teaches us about God, to be sure, but also about ourselves. It teaches us about us. The next phrase is more difficult. Paul says the Bible is useful for reproof. Now, what is reproof? Hmm? Fault finding. Hmm, yes, uh, but it's, it's somebody finding fault in you, right? Yeah, that's, that's right. It's not very pleasant, is it? We don't really like it when people tell us what's wrong with us. Nobody likes to be reproved. You know, back in the dawn of modern advertising in the 1920s, Listerine mouthwash had a slogan, and it lasted for quite a while, so some of you of a certain age probably will remember it. The slogan was, even your best friends won't tell you. <laughs> and what was it they won't tell you? That you have bad breath. But I've always thought that was a little off because actually isn't it your best friends who will tell you when something's wrong? It's your best friends who will tell you, maybe not about your bad breath, but about things you've said or done that are wrong, things often that you'd rather not admit to in yourself. It was more than 40 years ago, but I remember it as if it were yesterday. I had said something that was hurtful to someone and my friend Jim confronted me. Well, let's be honest, he read me the riot act. He told me precisely what I had said, why I shouldn't have said it, how it had felt to the person to whom I'd said it. He told me that I really needed to apologize. Then he told me that he loved me, and it was because he loved me that he would not tolerate that kind of behavior. That was not an easy conversation, especially because I knew he was right. I had been reproved 
and I needed it. And the blessing of the Bible is that it offers reproof. It tells us quite honestly how far we have fallen short of God's will for us, and quite specifically in what ways we have fallen short. And I don't know about you, but as, as I think back over my own Christian life, I'm sure that I've grown the most when I have found, through reading the Bible, that parts of my life were not as they should be. And if I don't learn and inwardly digest that sober and troubling truth, then how can I ever change? And how can I grow? But the Bible doesn't leave it at that, of course. It, it is also, Paul says, useful for correction. It doesn't just show what's wrong. It goes on to tell me how very much God loves me in spite of that and how much God wants me to do better. Some years ago, I had a, a student who was obviously very bright, but he was someone who had never learned to write very well. And so I made him an offer. I will take the time, I said, to be absolutely ruthless with your written work. I'm going to take my red pen. I'm going to mark every spelling mistake, every grammatical mistake, every misplaced comma and apostrophe, every infelicitous phrase. I'm going to make your paper a sea of red ink. You can tell this was a long time ago and we still did papers on paper. Your grade, I said, will be based on the content of what you write, so don't, you know, freak out when you see all these red marks. But I'm going to take the time to mark every picky little detail, provided you read it all and learn from it. And he agreed. So that's what we did. And two or three years later, he emailed me, sort of out of the blue. I had not had any contact with him. He now is working on a PhD, and he was just writing to thank me for helping me learn, for helping him learn to write better. You're the only professor who ever did that, he said, and I'm so grateful for what you did. You see, all of us need correction. It's the only way that we get better, and that's what the Bible offers. It offers us correction about what is amiss in our life. And then Paul writes that the Bible is useful for training in righteousness. Once we've been corrected, the next step is guidance in doing better, and, and that's something the, the Bible offers as well. I really like that word training. I think in some ways the Bible is kind of like a, a personal trainer. It's someone who gives you advice about how to exercise, of course, but with a good trainer, it's not just do this, it's explaining how and why to do it this way, showing you how to do it, and even more important, it's providing encouragement, moral support when you're ready to give up, it's urging you on, come on, you can do it. And that's what the Bible does. It tells us how we're to live, and then it shows us, it helps us, it encourages us, it cheers us on. And all of this, Paul says, is so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient and equipped for every good work. The word to underscore there is everyone. Reading the Bible is not just for the clergy. It's not just for the learned. It's not just for Sunday school children. It's not just for new converts to the faith. It's not something we outgrow when we reach adulthood. 
but it is our necessary and sufficient armor for facing everything that comes our way throughout life. It's our nourishment. It is God's breath in our hearts. John Wesley was an Anglican priest who founded the Methodist movement in the 18th century, and he was a man who lived and breathed the scriptures. In one of his essays, one of my favorites, he explained why he found the Bible to be so very important. He was aware, he wrote, of the shortness of life, aware that his days were limited. I want to know one thing, he said. I want to know the way to heaven, how to land safe on that happy shore. And God himself has condescended to teach the way. He's written it down in a book. Oh, give me that book at any price. Give me that book of God. Let me be a man of one book. Oh, that God would make us, those of us who call Emmanuel Episcopal Church our home, that God would make us a people of one book the book that is able to instruct for salvation through Jesus Christ, the book, the very breath of God that will teach us and reprove us and correct us and train us so that all of us, all of us might be equipped for every good work. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, amen.